Pamela, thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate it. Um, the, the first question we'd love to ask, and I think I told you this uh, last week when we talked, um, is who are you and why do you love what you do? It's one of our favorite questions that we were introduced early on our podcast and we want to keep asking everybody that. Yeah, I love that question. So I'm thrilled to be here. My name is Pamela Fuller. I am Franklin Covey's thought leader on inclusion and bias and also one of our sales leaders. Um, but I think more importantly, I am, you know, a wife and a mother to two small boys. And I, that is the part of my identity that I'm proudest of and really fuels what I do. And I, I love what I do because I get to connect with people and help them solve big sort of gnarly problems. Right. And I think I'm really influenced by the work of Clayton Christensen and talking about the role of management and leadership. And, and what I get to do, I get to talk to leaders every day who have profound impact on the people who work for them. And I think that that's interesting um, because it sort of has these orders of magnitude, right? Yeah. Well, most people who have the same passion you have about leadership and management and inspiring others, I would say don't go on to write a book uh, which you've already done, co-authored a, a really amazing book. If you Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, can you just tell us what led you to write this book? I've always had the desire to write a book, like on my, I don't know, you sort of think of your life and you have this like mantle where you lay your accomplishments. And I always had hoped that I could write a book. I've always been really passionate about um, writing and reading. And when I started to explore unconscious bias and really ensure that this was a part of our sort of leadership lens at Franklin Covey, it felt like when you look at designing curriculum and content, there's a way in which you have to do that to be in alignment with adult learning principles. And you cannot like lecture people for eight hours, right? You have to create activities and design ways for them to discover. It's more show than tell, right? Um, but there was so much more to say about it, right? There was so much research and so many different angles and ways in which you can think about the impact of bias on performance. And then more importantly, what each leader from wherever they lead in an organization or institution can do to recognize those biases and mitigate the possible negative aspects. So it felt like after we designed the curriculum, there was just a lot left to still talk about. And so that's really what led to the book is I wanted to ensure that that content and research and perspective got to see the light of day, right? Because it was really important. Well, uh, you and I talked recently because uh, we get a chance to serve on our company's DEI council together. And I, I think one of the best compliments that I personally can give you, I don't know if I'm out to everybody else, is that uh, when I think about who is this book for, um, I've got a very close friend who has not spent much of his career engaging in unconscious bias and diversity and equity inclusion conversations. And so uh, was tiptoeing into this conversation and really trying to learn where to grow. And then I have my wife who's upstairs right now on her Zoom calls, who's the director of talent for an inner city school district here in St. Louis that I'm blown away by what they try to do in terms of how they train their staff, train Ashley to go really deep in unpacking their biases. And so, both of those individuals in my life have found so much uh, to learn and grow from from this book. So I do want to just say thank you for taking the time. But also, I'm pretty impressed that you can write a book where um, no matter where we are on the spectrum of understanding bias, um, we can enter in. Is that something that you intentionally did when you wrote it? Definitely. I mean, I think people are accustomed. So like cynics around diversity, equity and inclusion would look at the book and think, oh, this is I'm going to be like beaten over the head with all the ways I should feel guilty. Right. And, and all the ways that I have problematic beliefs. And I don't think that people can make progress when they feel so terrible. Right. <laughs> you have to sort of meet people where they are and look at look at the problem from a as a solvable problem. Um, and move away from making people sort of feel like bad people. On the other hand, if you are sort of on the other end of the spectrum, it feels like diversity, equity, and inclusion is always pushing the bar in terms of what we're talking about, right? It's like you see the evolution of language when you think about the LGBTQ plus community, right? And the addition of letters there and talking instead just about you know, gay and lesbian people, but actually talking about trans people and trans people at work and trans people in school and trans students and how do we, right? And so I think 
it's important, it was important to write a book that was sort of flexible and agile enough to meet people exactly where they were without being too soft, right? And without being, or, or too tepid on the progress that there is to make and that it's possible to make that progress and without, in, without making anyone feel badly about, or not badly is maybe not the right phrase, but also without making anyone feel like it wasn't accessible to them, like they right. were left out of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, to your point, like when you see unconscious bias, uh, you think, oh, well, you know, depending on where you're on the spectrum, you're thinking, ah, there are some folks that I don't really need to go into that. I don't want to get beaten over the head with bias or whatever that is. And one of the statements you make early in the book that is so freeing for anybody and hopefully everybody is you say something, and I've heard you say it in a couple of interviews, maybe too, is to be human is to have bias, right? Why is that? Why do you say that? And what does that mean? I mean, bias is a natural part of the human condition and how the brain works. So our brains are supercomputers and they're doing a lot of automatic processing to help us navigate the world and help us navigate our day. So in any given moment, we're faced with 11 million bits of information. Our brain can only actively process 40 of those bits. And if my brain didn't have these cognitive shortcuts to sort of filter all that information out, I wouldn't be able to complete my sentences. I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. I wouldn't know what to wear in the morning, right? And I certainly wouldn't know how to solve challenging problems, right? Or um, engage meaningfully with people because I'd be so overwhelmed or like inundated with all of the information facing me. I wouldn't know what to do with any of it. So bias or our cognitive shortcuts in our brain is actually good and helps us navigate the world. And that's why we say to be human is to, um, to have biases to be human. Right. And I, I think, uh, for me, so it's, it's when I hear that as one, okay, okay, great. I know I have biases and bias can be good. They can be helpful. Right. But the goal of this is to unpack how to, uh, make sure that we're, we're not, how we're overcoming, I guess, the negative aspects of bias. Is that how, how you would say it? How would you, how would you frame what I'm trying to say? <laughs> I would say that it's really important to think about the impacts of our biases. That like my job is not to judge your bias, right? Your bias doesn't have value on its face, but it impacts your behavior and that behavior has a consequence. And so the question becomes, does my bias or the lens through which I'm viewing this circumstance or the cognitive shortcuts happening in my brain, is that inhibiting of possibilities? for me or the people around me? Or is it enhancing of possibilities for me or the people around me? And if the answer is that it's inhibiting, right? That it has some sort of detrimental or negative consequence, then I have a responsibility and accountability, if you will, to explore that further and do something about that. How do we mitigate the negative impacts of bias? And the first step to that is really looking at bias through this lens of impact. Yeah, so speaking of impact, I mean, th this podcast is for people who aspire to be leaders, particularly education leaders uh, who are trying to currently lead their schools or districts in a certain way or for uh, uh, folks who aspire to be that way. You make two claims earlier in the book that I thought were pretty powerful. One is you said there's no way to be a great leader if you don't confront your bias or make inclusion incredibly important. And then another one is addressing bias improves performance of the organization. Mm -hmm. Why do you believe these statements to be true? I mean, I think many people fancy there's themselves great leaders, right? And as an educator, you think about the impact of your decisions on the outcomes of your students and the um, professional development opportunities for your teachers and your different policies as you look at administration and how the school system or educational institution is operating, right? But if you don't have this lens of inclusion to that thinking, then people are unintentionally or intentionally being left behind, right? They're being left out of that very intentional leadership that you are working to exhibit. And so I think that to be a great leader is to be an inclusive leader. You have to think about what your leadership means, not just for people who are exactly like you or see the world exactly how you see it, but everyone who is touched by your leadership in one way or another. Um, and so I think that's really important. I think the tie to performance is really that, you know, our, as I mentioned earlier, our biases don't have value on their face. They impact our behavior. That behavior has a consequence. And when you think about education, the question is, you know, are the students um, operating under the conditions 
to achieve at their best? Do they feel respected, included, and valued, right? Do they feel capable? Um, and are the teachers operating under the conditions to achieve high performance? Because when we feel like we're on the receiving end of negative bias, it does real harm to our overall sense of well-being. And there's a tax to that, right? There's a price to that. It means that we are giving our discretionary effort to this harm to our well-being instead of to learning, instead of to educating, instead of to solving problems, right? Um, so that tide of performance is really clear to me because each of us knows exactly what it feels like to operate in those conditions of high performance. We also know what it feels like to be marginalized for some reason or diminished for some reason or completely disengaged because we're in a very toxic environment, right? And inclusion and the lens of bias are important factors in whether we feel like we're in those conditions for high performance. So we're in an environment in education right now where, you know, hopefully we're coming out of a pandemic with vaccines and everything else where uh, our, our staff can start getting back together in a school building or district office and so start having developing stronger culture possibly uh, and our students are coming back. And so the first question I have is when you think about if I'm a leader of the adults, right? So not the student outcomes, what can and should I be doing right now to lead in the way you're suggesting here of really addressing that negative bias? I think in the we're in this interesting time because there's also been huge disparity in how we've all experienced the pandemic. And so I think as a leader, it's really important to understand like where your educators are coming from in terms of that experience. And um, I mean, some people are rather dismissive of mask mandates and, and COVID hasn't impacted them at all. They've still traveled, they've still seen their family, they've still, right? Other people have, have lost part members of their family or have been very ill themselves, right? There's like this full spectrum of experience. And I think it's important as we're preparing to sort of return to work to really validate and honor those experiences and understand what people are coming back into the building with, right? So are they coming back into the building with incredible fatigue? Are they coming back into the building with a sense that people like them experience the pandemic differently or at disproportionate rates? Are they coming back into the building worried about what's happening at home because you know, they have children, they, their partner lost their job because of COVID, right? And they're, they're, they've got sort of one eye on their work and, and another eye at home because there's just so much turmoil or, or like unfinished business, if you will, or, or ramifications of the pandemic that have yet to be remedied. And I think it's, it's really important to understand what people are coming back into the building with and then to ask them what they need, right? Um, because I think the answer is not the same for everybody. But it is this general sense that we've all been through something really challenging. And as a leader, I have to understand how each of those people has experienced that and how I can best help them and understand that that's a unique experience for each person. That's, that's great advice. When you think about students, is your advice similar for teachers of how to help serve students? Or do you have any sort of twist to that advice? I think one of the things about student outcomes is we have like we have assumptions about populations, right? So there's been like all this talk about black and brown students have, you know, lost more or impoverished students have lost more. People didn't have access to the technology necessary or, you know, kids are being left home alone because if their parents were essential workers. And again, like, I think we just really need to ensure that we fully understand what every child is coming back into the building with or without and not sort of overlay our assumptions on them about what they're capable of or what their experience was during the pandemic. Mm. So you you feel like when I think about bias, right? So as you, you talked about learning loss is something that we're talking about a lot in the space of education right now. And uh, obviously, you know, kids are coming back and they may have lost a year or more of learning, particularly in math, I believe is what we're learning right now when you think about unconscious bias, what role is it playing? Is it really, like you said, is it not assuming that we know what kind of loss the kids had or if they had any loss or assuming where they're at? Is there anything else that you think when it comes to uh, addressing unconscious bias with kids? 
I mean, I think the biggest reality of bias with kids is all the data says that we tell kids what we believe their possibilities are, right? Like when you track a kid into the gifted program, you're telling them that they're brilliant and capable and they can accomplish anything that they want. And when you track them into remedial courses, you're telling them that they're not as smart as their peers. And when, you know, in fourth grade, we see that data point that girls stop raising their hand in STEM in particular, right? Because they're sort of signaled somehow that they don't, shouldn't have those answers or shouldn't be interested in those things, right? So I think kids are, are more susceptible than adults to what other people think of their possibilities. And so I think it's really important to think about how do we engage an entire classroom in ways that are not diminishing? How do we, I mean, our Leader in Me program does a lot of this, right? And saying that every student has the ability to be a leader. And we know that if you don't have that sort of intentional lens on your classroom, you could unintentionally be segmenting your students, right? This is my disruptive student. And so I always anticipate that they'll be disruptive and I signal to them that they shouldn't be disruptive instead of signaling to them like what value they could bring or do they have additional insights on this thing or how might they solve this problem, right? They just become the person I'm always referring to as disruptive. Or this student becomes the person who always helps me. They really, they really like being a helper and that means that they are signaled, that they are capable, right? That they can help the teacher, that they are somehow superior to their peers and their peers start to see that as well. So I think we signal the children about their possibilities and it's really important to think about why we're sick. Like what evidence do I have that this student can only be disruptive? Or what evidence do I have that this student, that these students can't be helpers, right? Or that these students do or do not understand the problems? And have I asked them? um where you know where they stand and where they see themselves and then sort of taught to that versus taking you know we never want to be judged on our worst moment and sometimes students are it's like they come back and they'll be coming back they haven't been in the classroom now for a year right they'll, they have to like learn all the mechanics again and are we gonna sort of penalize some kids over others based on how they behave in those first couple of weeks back or how they've handled the stress and trauma of the pandemic yeah that's that's Insightful. I think it reminds me of a couple of weeks ago, I was in a conversation with a high school principal that uh, we're looking to partner with possibly. And the comment that kind of threw me off a little bit was, well, is this just for, can we just give this to our freshmen and sophomores right now? Just because the juniors and seniors, they're, they're kind of done. They've already like, they're, they're already who they are are going to be. Uh, so we should let them go. And I'm thinking, man, if that's the lens that we're approaching kids with even older kids like juniors and seniors that has to be if we have any paradigms that are anywhere close to that for kids younger that has to be even more damaging wouldn't you say i mean i think think about that right like were you fully formed at 16 i mean those decisions still that not you fully made, formed. right the decisions and priorities that you had at 16 or 17 or 18 for someone to say that's it um is is sort of terrible right it's sort of sad because I think we're still to your point, like we're still working on it. <laughs> and that's one of the things we talk about in the book is this ability of our brains to make new neural pathways, no matter how old we are, right? This neuroplasticity that we have cognitive shortcuts and biases and things that have been poured into us over our lifetime. And then it's that Maya Angelou quote, like when you know better, you do better, right? You start to think about impact, just like teenagers, they, they don't think too much about impact, but then they experience consequences and repercussions and they quite often change how they approach a circumstance or situation, right? Based on what they're trying to achieve. So I think that sentiment is, can be incredibly limiting, right? Because none of us are who we were when we were 16. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the one thing, I'm sure you get that all the time when you're talking to folks is uh, when this podcast of nothing else, every time I'm in an interview, I'm thinking Man, I've got so much further to grow and it's great and inspiring, uh, but I'm not fully formed where I'm at. So I would hate to assume that any kid uh, in high school is fully formed. Uh, one of the tools that I think uh, when I was a district leader that I wish I would have had, um, that I think could be helpful both for district leaders as well as for school leaders and possibly teachers is your um, kind of performance zone model. I think I'm saying that right, where you have the the three performance zones or the three separate zones. Can you tell us a little bit about what that model is and why it matters? And possibly if you want to keep going or I'll ask, how does that 
play out from a from a district leader? How can I use that to make sure that we're operating at a high level? So it's a you know graphically looks a bit like a speedometer, and to the right is the high performance zone and the words respected, included, and valued. And this is our goal, right? Is that all of our students, all of our educators would feel respected, included, and valued, a true sense of belonging. Um, to the left of that is the limiting zone and the words ignored and tolerated. And for a long time, the diversity and inclusion space touted tolerance, right? The goal was that we would tolerate differences, that we would put up with one another. And, you know, that doesn't feel great. And we all can tell when we're being put up with, right? When we're being placated, um, or, uh, or tolerated. I have an 11 year old who um, during the pandemic has decided that he is a full teenager and <laughs> he tolerates me, right? I know, I know what that feels like. It's not great. Um, and it sort of inhibits your, your possibilities but it also does real harm to your overall sense of well-being. Like at our core as humans, we want to belong. And when we feel like we don't belong, it hurts, right? It hurts our feelings. Um, and there's some interesting research about what that means for our engagement and our ability to perform, right? And our ability, like even just the ability for our brain to function at its best, um, because we're giving all this sort of energy and effort to this feeling of like otherness um, versus feeling like we can be our whole selves. We're trying to make ourselves fit into whatever like society or our teacher or administration or our boss thinks we should be instead of who we actually are and all the sort of unique talents we have to bear. And then the furthest um, to the left of that, the furthest part of the speedometer is the damaging zone and the words slighted, harassed, and abused. And a lot of times people dismiss the words harassment and abuse. They're like, no, unconscious bias is unconscious. Like we don't do, that's, that's much more belligerent. But the reality is that being in the limiting zone, any sort of extended period of time results in this feeling of the damaging zone because it is so unnatural for us to feel othered in this way, right? It is like against our sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And as you think about the word slighted, that's really where microaggressions live. It is everyday injustices people endure based on some facet of their identity. It's everything from having someone consistently mispronounce or forget your name to actual disparate treatment in a circumstance. So, you know, someone doesn't hand in their, one student doesn't hand in their homework and they're given a pass. You know, I know things are tough right now, like don't worry about it, get it to me tomorrow. Another student doesn't hand in their homework and it's like, oh, you never hand in your homework, that's it. You've gotten zeros for homework and that's 30% of your grade, right? And the, the ways in which we give people empathy, we give people chances, we give people the benefit of the doubt or the opportunity to explain themselves or the opportunity to get better, right? To improve and grow, right? And learn. Um, and I think we each know what it feels like to be in each of these zones. We know what it feels like to be sort of your whole self and unapologetic about yourself and confident in your abilities. We know what it feels like to try to make yourself fit into an image, right? If you think of like middle school is probably the place where this is like most painfully true. <laughs> Just when you're trying to like fit into whatever cool is and that persists in other things, right? It persists into adulthood and it can certainly be your experience at work, right? That I'm not as outspoken as they want me to be or I haven't volunteered for these opportunities the way they want me to be or I haven't been, uh, you know, implementing our discipline policy the way that they want me to or whatever it might be. Um, and we certainly all know what it feels like to be in this damaging zone where we're just completely sort of disempowered um, or feeling belittled or like there's no hope for us to get better, right? And I think educators will feel that when they feel under-resourced or when they're advocating for a student and the sort of bureaucracy doesn't let them advocate for that student, right? Maybe a student is on an IEP, but also showing all of these, um, this potential to be in the gifted program, right? They have dual exceptionalities and a teacher is advocating, we need to let the student into the gifted program and the gifted coordinator is saying, absolutely not because this student can't sit down and create the portfolio necessary to enter the gifted program without support. And so they shouldn't be in the gifted program, right? And the sort of like frustrations of that and what that says about people who do have dual exceptionalities, right? Mm -hmm. I think 
these kinds of experiences happen every day. And it could be that you generally feel like you're in the high performance limiting or damaging zone, or it could be that I feel like when I'm engaging with Dustin, I'm in the high performing zone. And when I'm engaging with a colleague, I feel limited in some way, right? It can be based on action or a larger sort of sense. No, that's great. I, and you said something earlier about how all of us view our, if we're in leadership, most of us anyway, I should say all of us, uh, believe we are great leaders or at least aspiring to be great leaders. And so if I'm listening to this conversation, you know, I, I very much believe or want to believe that I, my team's in the high performance zone and we're moving towards that. What can we do to determine what zone we're in? And then what, how can I figure out which steps to use to move my team? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about, I mean, you as a leader could first plot your team. So if you just looked at performance, not the words underneath, but just performance, where would you put your team, right? Where would you put, who would you say is high performing? Who would you say is a little bit disengaged? And who would you say is a poor performer? And it's not to say there's correlation 100% between sort of where you've plotted the people and um, and their sense of belonging in the organization, but it's an interesting starting point. It can also be interesting to ask them, right, in your one-on-one -on -one with them, where they would plot themselves, right? And if there's correlation, if you all are plotting in the same place or if they see their circumstance differently. The other thing that I think is important for leaders is to ask yourself as you look at sort of where you've plotted your team, we talk in the book about the relationship between our own identities and the biases that we hold and the ways we ascribe value over other people and how we identify talent and potential. And so is there a correlation between your own identity and the things that you value, the characteristics and traits that you value and where you've plotted people? And how much do you know about these people? You know, could you answer across the board where does this person see themselves in five years? Not where you see them, but where they see themselves. What are they most worried about right now? What are they most excited about right now? And if you can't answer those questions, it lends itself to this under recognition that I'm potentially not as connected to this person as I should be as their leader, right? And if you don't know those things about them, the chances are high that they there's correlation between how visible or seen they feel by you, right? Um, and there's opportunity to build psychological safety and trust there to better understand each other's perspective and ensure that you and your team are actually in these conditions to perform at your best. Yeah, one of the uh, things I've tried to do recently that's not with my team anyways, that is not as proactive as the advice that you give throughout your book. Um, but it, it does address, I think, some of the concerns is when I see a behavior on someone on my team that does not seem to be inclusive or um, to be uh, uplifted in a way, I'm not talking about rah-rah positivity, but like feeling a part of the group and excited, I feel like it seems detriment anyway. I just have the conversation. When I start the conversation, I talk about, here's all the great things I have noticed about you. And here's this thing that stands out as definitely an outlier. I'm assuming I'm missing a huge story of what led to here. What do I need to know and understand so that I can better serve you, better lead our team? I don't know if that's good advice. Feel free to correct my leadership, but that's what I've been trying to do as I notice it so I can get the story if I'm not asking it along the way. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I mean, in the absence of information, our brain creates a story and you identifying something less than stellar about an employee or someone on the team or, or like some detrimental feeling or sentiment from them. And if you were to go to them and just accuse them of it, like, hey, I've really noticed you're not being a team player. You need to do better, right? Like there's not a lot an employee can do with that. They feel defensive. They feel worried about their employment. They don't understand necessarily where you're coming from. Whereas I think one of the strategies that we certainly advocate throughout the book, and particularly as we talk about the importance of connection to mitigate negative bias is asking questions. And so framing observations as questions so that those observations can then be like validated or not is a really important step to opening the conversation so you can better understand what's going on with the person and how to better support them to be you know, in that high performance zone. Yeah, and I, I feel like, again, for me at this time, I feel like I've got high trust of my team, but I still found myself 
nervous coming into the conversation, a little scared, uh, just because I didn't want to go sideways. I didn't want to dishonor the person. And so, you know, I know you talk quite a bit in your book about courage, um, but also you give some advice in there about how to navigate these difficult bias conversations. What kind of advice could you give all of us of how to go into these conversations with a little more confidence and um, some skills to, to navigate them effectively? Yeah, I think we talk a lot in the book about this balance of um, empathy and curiosity. And so if you identify what what you think is biased in another person that is potentially problematic, it is important to sort of open with a question to better understand their perspective. And then when they share sort of their thought, you know, we role play a conversation in the book around fit. And people often say like, well, so-and-so wouldn't be a good fit in the organization, or they might not be a good fit on this team or, um, you know, in this administrator role. And it's important instead of sort of our instinct might be like, well, what do you mean by fit? And you're discounting them because of this or whatever, right? We could just ask questions like, what do you mean by fit, right? And the tone in which you ask a question, I think is important. Um, so you can ask a question where you're actually seeking the answer and you can ask a question in a way that asserts the answer and mm -hmm. people can tell the difference, right? So um, I think we can feel confident if we actually enter into these conversations with the intent to make progress, then we are asking questions, we are listening empathically to the responses, we are paying attention to how we feel in the circumstance if we're getting like agitated, if we feel um, offended, if we feel like we're being pushed into that like slighted zone somehow, right? And being able to sort of bring the temperature down and validate how we're feeling and how the other person is feeling through additional questions that sort of get to understanding. I think we'll see those conversations become productive versus contentious. Well, to, to that point, and I, I'm, you know, I, I've read your book a couple of times now. I don't, I don't know if it's in this section of empathy and curiosity, but I remember you highlighting an example in there of a manager coming into a conversation with a direct report and the different frame of minds they had coming into a feedback conversation. Can you mm -hmm. share either that example, if you know what I'm talking about, or another example that kind of gives it some clarity for everybody listening? Yeah. So, I mean, we talked in the book about these three parts of your brain, right? That like our goal in mitigating bias is to stay in our prefrontal cortex. It is the critical thinking sort of front part of our brain that when we are pushed into the emotional or primitive parts of our brain, we are more reactive, right? And we are more likely to lean into these cognitive shortcuts, into bias thinking that could be unintentionally limiting or problematic or contentious. And that if you think about feedback conversations, you know, I as a manager could go into a feedback conversation knowing that I need to give some critical feedback to my direct report. And I am very logical in, you know, here's my evidence and here's the things we need to talk about and the skill that this direct report needs to improve on. On the other hand, my direct report, here's my like, you know, my framing, right? And I, and I start with, to your point, like the good things about them. And they have had so many feedback conversations with previous supervisors and they are immediately pushed into the emotional and defensive part of their brain, right? So I'm saying like, I really appreciate how you approach these problems and this thing. And they're like, oh, here it comes, right? Like <laughs> here it comes, but right. What's the, but what's the feedback. And that the reality is that when they are in that emotional or primitive part of their brain, they're not able to engage in like a logical conversation. And so then they sort of start to get worked up and I'm thinking they're so emotional and they're being so dramatic. And why aren't they listening to my like well-crafted, well-planned feedback conversation? And they're thinking that I'm cold and I'm they don't feel connected to me at all. You know, does she even care about me? And she's just always like so, you know, focused on business and she's saying all these things, but like, am I gonna lose my job? You know, I have bills to pay, right? And, th and there's this mutual misunderstanding. We're just talking past each other because I'm saying that they're not being rational and logical. And they're saying like, I'm, cold-hearted and not being not connecting as a person um which doesn't really get us anywhere right yeah so how, how do we get past that because to your point you're coming into a very non you know uh, matter of fact of i am just trying to help you get better at this one part of, one aspect of your job or just to get better performance 
and they're attaching the entire discussion to their identity. How, what can we do on the front end or during the conversation to try to avoid those? Cause I'm sure anybody who's listening, anybody who's managed anybody ever has had this experience before. Yeah. Um, so I think going back to questions and asking questions about what they're experiencing, like, can you tell me what, this is what I observed. What were you thinking when that happened? Right. Or how might you have approached this or what don't I understand about this circumstance? You also know when they're getting worked up, right? You can see them getting worked up. And I feel like when we're in that prefrontal cortex, like our instinct is to say, well, just calm down. Like we're just having a conversation and you know, in the history of statements to say to someone who's worked up, calm down, doesn't really <laughs> ever work. It feels patronizing. And so recognizing that if they are highly emotional, acknowledging those feelings, right? Instead of trying to push past them to the logical piece saying, okay, I hear you. I hear you getting upset about this. Tell me what you're concerned about, right? And sort of flipping the conversation, particularly because if we're going into feedback conversations, we have like practiced that, right? Like we've crafted what we're gonna say. And so sometimes it's, we show up and it's like, here's my monologue, now react to it. And, right. and, and we need to be willing and agile enough to sort of recalibrate so that if someone's temperature is rising, we can sort of bring them back to that logical part of their brain, assure them that, you know, this is not a conversation about you getting fired. This is not a conversation that is irreparable, that this is just an opportunity for us to connect more and ensure that we are performing at our best. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. How do you precondition the the conversation in a, in a way that's helpful? And so that's that's really good advice. Um, I think one of the, to, I mean, I love the, the fact that asking questions, uh, both empathetically, but also curiosity's sake, uh, seems to be something that's powerful. Keep asking questions, asking questions, asking questions. I also feel in a conversation like this or any any conversation around bias, uh, showing up and being fully present, meaning your head and your heart are in the game to really feel, listen, and go with the flow is really important. Other than, you know, in a feedback conversation, it's like, my goal is just to give you feedback, right? Or is my goal to really continue to grow our relationship and help coach you, but also maybe coach me so our performance gets high. Is, do you see the world the same way as I'm kind of sensing it right now? Yeah, and I think to your point, you can like thinking about those meetings, thinking about our largely virtual environment, um, you, you can also certainly declare that intent like via email or call someone and say, I'd like to plan this conversation and ensure that people are even in a circumstance to receive that, right? Like there are times in the day when my four-year-old is banging on my office door because he's done with me working, right? And there's sort of those realities where it's important to even ask your your team, like, I want to have a conversation about, I want to have a feedback conversation, or I want to have a performance conversation. And my intent is to better understand what happened and to connect with you and, and partner to get better. I also want to make sure that we schedule this for a good time, right? Like, this is not um, while you're trying to make dinner for the kids or like back to your back to back on calls and I'm your sixth call of the day right? or or yeah. things like that. Right. It is during a time when we have a little you have a little bit more space to process it. And I think planning is that much more important in our current environment with all the sort of stressors people are facing. So true. One of the things that you just uh, I think at the beginning of this conversation, you're talking about kind of, I guess, the the brain and how it works with bias. I know you break down some of the neuroscience of bias. Can you share with us again in a little bit more detail uh, what you talk about in your book about the neuroscience of bias? Yeah. So we talk about these three parts of the brain and there are more than 188 different kinds of biases, right? There's confirmation bias and in-group bias, negativity bias and um, affinity bias and halo effect and horn effect, right? And just sort of all these shortcuts that our brain is susceptible to. And we've really distilled that into what we call these three bias traps. And these are circumstances in which we're more susceptible to bias thinking, right? Essentially circumstances when we're pushed out of that prefrontal cortex and into the sort of emotional or primitive part of our brain. And so those three circumstances that we talk about are information overload, that when we are overwhelmed with information, our brain throws out things that are useful. The second is feelings over facts, that when we have high emotion in a circumstance, our brain takes how we feel and turns it into a fact. And so 
And someone says, is Pamela capable? And the response is, well, I don't really like Pamela. And it's, that wasn't the question, right? The question was, am I capable? But our brain takes how we feel, whether you like me or not, and turns it into a fact, whether I'm capable or not. And the third is the need for speed. Um, that when we are under duress, we make decisions that are simplistic and often self-serving. So that's why you see, you know, that the percentage of children in juvenile detention or expelled from schools, um, a disproportionate amount of those children have learning disabilities, right? Because you think of as a teacher, you have a classroom of 30 students, right? Sometimes more than that. And the thing that is like, you have to get through curriculum. You have to get the kids ready for the test. You have an agenda for the day. Maybe you're being observed that day and you have two or three kids who learn differently and they require more of you and they need you to slow down or they need you to accommodate them in some way. Um, and our instinct might be to penalize them because they're slowing down the circumstance, right? Which is an overly simplistic response, but we feel under duress because there's a schedule and bells and things we need to adhere to. Um, uh, in that environment, right? Well, I, I uh, when you're talking about the neuroscience of bias, I actually tried one of the examples that you gave about facts over feelings uh, with my seven-year-old. We were talking about the, and I, I'm gonna just start into it and let you make it sound way more eloquent than me, but it was about the United States versus Africa, just the size on the map, right? Mm. Can you share that one? And then there was another one about Haiti, I believe, and just, they. Both of those in very different ways help plan the plane of how often we use feelings over facts. Yeah, so we, um, this is uh, from a TED talk actually. So Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is a, a Nigerian author and she has this great TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story. And it is that we have like these instincts or feelings about things and they become limiting. And so she uses Haiti as the example that we always describe Haiti, we always hear Haiti described as the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. And we never hear it described as the first independent black republic in the Western hemisphere. And those two narratives, those two descriptions, one is incredibly enhancing of possibilities and potential and talent Right. And the other is incredibly limiting of possibilities and potential and talent. And we tell those kinds of stories about students and we tell those kinds of stories about districts and schools. Right. And uh, how we track the kids. Right. Like this program versus that program. We tell those kinds of stories and it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Because we're defining possibilities um, under those terms. The other example you mentioned was just an image. And we often, if you look at sort of a map of the world, it, it looks as if on many maps that Africa and the US, or at least Africa and North America are about the same size. But Africa is much larger than North America. And so in this image was an outline of Africa and all of the countries around the world that fit inside Africa, right? And it's all the major countries that we think of. It's like all of Europe, right? The whole region, <laughs> um, plus South America, plus North America, right? Plus India, like it all just sort of fits in there um, because Africa is huge in terms of like landmass and volume, but the way maps are made, they're from a Western hemisphere perspective. And so we think of Africa as tiny when it's actually so much larger than our own context. Yeah, I think uh, the reason I wanted to, to, to go there was both of those examples, the, the Haiti example was so powerful and uh, you landed the plane really quickly about that is so easily transferable to how do we look at individual student? How do we look at individual potential school, right? That has their own identity, maybe to your point, a district. Uh, and how does that, the outsiders look into it as well as how do we inside those areas operate and what does that mean? And so it can be really harmful. And so I think you know, if nothing else, if folks walk away today, really understanding that they have to look for facts over their feelings and how big of a role feelings play in their facts, I think that's a, a, a big takeaway. The, and there's so many places we can go with this. I don't want to get lost all day. I think uh, for me, what I appreciate towards the end of your book is just hitting home that this breaking unconscious bias is not a one-time thing. It's not a read a book and be done or a semester or a training course. 
Um, this is long-term. Can you kind of give us some encouragement as well as a vision of what that means if we're really gonna go tackle this in our district? Yeah, I think that adding this lens to our thinking, like are we, do we have the courage to ask ourselves difficult questions about how we educate students, about how we promote teachers, about how we determine curriculum, about what voices we're elevating in the classroom, about how we're connecting with parents, not just the stay-at-home parents who can be at the 10 a.m. meetings, but all the parents, right, including the parents who don't necessarily speak English um, or don't have a formal education of their own, right? Um, I think it's really important to continually ask ourselves the question, how could my lens be impacting this circumstance, right? And am I ascribing value to something that is really just about my own experience? And am I exposing myself to the kinds of stories that will give me a better picture of the lives and experiences of my students, right? And this lends to our thinking, just like you would evaluate risk, just like you would evaluate the merit of curriculum, right? Just like you would evaluate um, any decision, are we also asking our this question around bias? Because if we can do that, we can look at all of the processes and their unintended and intended consequences and ensure that no one's being left behind or left out. And I think that it can feel exhausting, right? But that that sort of micro action, that constant analysis and questioning and adjusting just a bit when we recognize something can be detrimental to possibilities, that's what leads to macro change. Because it can feel in a bureaucracy, right, in terms of education, that it's difficult to change things. But if we, it's, it's sort of like running a marathon, right? Like I'm a runner. I haven't run a marathon. I've run a 10K is the longest I've run. And like, as you're running it, every step, it feels like you're not moving sometimes, like particularly <laughs> toward the end, you're like, I'm not going in the slowest runner in the world, right? And then you finish and you sort of look back and it's like, oh man, I went 10K, right? Like, oh, I went a marathon. And I think that when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in education, when we look back, there's been a, rare, a marathon run and like everything we do is a step in favor of the next marathon that we'll see that progress it just takes a little bit of time yeah i think i mean again it comes back to one of the claims you made at the beginning that hits me deeply in my heart which is there's no way to be a great leader if you don't confront your bias so every day just look at your bias again the good bias and the bad bias uh to be a better leader but also to create to make inclusion incredibly important to your team as well as your organization and to your point that that just takes every day I wake up and I put one foot in front of the other and keep that at the forefront of our mind and our decisions. Right. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. the the last question that we ask every guest is a, a pretty simple one. I mean, we're uh, change starts here is about leaders who are coming with a mindset of leadership's messy. We fall down and fail often, but we're going to continue to get back up and put one foot in front of the other. What advice do you have for district leaders or school leaders that are out there uh, right now to take this first step and make some change right now? And this could be from your book or just what's on your heart right now as you've talked to a number of ed educators and organizational leaders over the last few months. I think um, it's interesting the initial point you made about the spectrum. So I think it's important for people to sort of confront reality about where they are on the spectrum, right? And so if you feel out of your depth with diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, you as an educator have education and expertise that makes you really good at that job. You have confidence and competence as an educator. You have to sort of pay the price for confidence and competence as someone thinking about and influencing diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And so I think a first step is really committing to that deliberate sort of self-education, right? Is that picking up my book and actually going through, not just reading it, but going through the exercises at the end of each chapter? Is it watching a TED talk like the one that I mentioned every single day and sometimes pulling them up with your team and talking about them? Right? Is it looking at if you are something, you know, if you're someone who's in more of an administrator role, maybe you're like 
a reading coach, right? And you have a set of reading teachers or you're the lead teacher for sixth grade and you have those teachers, right? What is your cadence for meetings? And could you take 15 minutes of each of those meetings or five minutes of each of those meetings and have sort of an educational tidbit if that is, you know, you could rotate responsibility and everyone selects an article. But I think it is this deliberate commitment to education so that you can, you know, be a more inclusive educator and really understand all of the research and behavior change and and um, and sort of individual impact that that would require, right? Or individual action, I should say, that that would require and take. I think for many people, they're very educated on it. And the question is then, how are you utilizing that education every day? Just like you utilize your background and expertise and your education as an educator, right? How are you? You know, is it that you're bringing up inequity in curriculum discussions? Is it that you are elevating or amplifying marginalized voices in your literature class so that your students know that not only white men can write, <laughs> right? Um, or that great novels were written, you know, less than a hundred years ago, that there's more recent <laughs> things that, that have been written, right? Um, and so I think it, it is this like first step of education and the second step of action in terms of what is it in your sort of circle of influence that you are um, doing every day to actually uh, be more inclusive or sort of use this lens to your thinking. Yeah, I mean, as we we started the conversation, you know, I, I keep holding up your book for anybody who's watching on video because it's something that, and I've got tabs, I've got all all the stuff. There's not many books that I have this many tabs and notes and sticky notes in here. Um, and it's not just because I'm sitting here talking to you as actually did that before. And for me, again, this is unconscious bias. Shouldn't be a scary topic, but there's plenty of folks who are a little nervous about it, addressing it. This book was written in a way for any of us, to your point, no matter where you are in the spectrum, you can learn, it's easy to read. There's really good, helpful hints. One of those hints that I've already started to use is that uh, the mindfulness, right? So adding mindfulness, and we've heard that a lot, but when it comes to unconscious bias work, it's, you know, I've got a set time in the morning and set time in the evening that I do my, my own mindfulness things. And I adding, some of those questions that you gave us, which are, you know, what did my bias look like today? Did I use it? What were my feelings? I mean, I'm gonna slaughter the questions right now, but it's something that uh, just that simple note of pausing and recognizing where my privilege was that day, where my bias is, and figuring out how to utilize that to get just a little bit better the next day. I feel for me, it was incredibly freeing as a leader. And so I thank you for one, you and your team, you know, the two authors of Mark Murphy and Ian Chow, uh, having the courage to write this book, but also writing it in a way that no matter where we are coming into this conversation, we can get one step better and then another step better. So thank you for you being you. Thank you for writing this book. We are so honored to have you here. And hopefully again, we can have you back in the future. Thanks so much, Dustin. It's been a pleasure to ch chat with you. Yeah, I appreciate you. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, cast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.